0: Welcome to the Chemistry Factor Podcast, dedicated to help you consciously inspire your actions in business, no matter what circumstances you're facing, transforming your stress into empowering success. I'm Coach Barney, founder of the Chemistry Factor. For over 25 years, I've worked with hundreds of successful business leaders who have all experienced how poor working relationships and unexpected business setbacks cause the anxiety and stress that weakens your productivity, innovation, and leadership skills. You do not choose to be stressed. It is a reaction, not a decision, that drains your energy, making work hard and less fulfilling. Together, we will discover how to empower your attitude to achieve the greater success and satisfaction you've always wanted in your business, career, and life. Welcome to the Chemistry Factor Podcast, where we discuss how conscious value empowerment will inspire your attitude to achieve the greater success and satisfaction you've always wanted in your business, career, and life. My guest today is James Berman. He is a CPA and chartered accountant. He is the Chief Financial Officer at CBX an award-winning and independent creative packaging design and strategic brand development agency. James is originally from South Africa, working there and later at the Channel Islands before immigrating to the United States as an audit manager at the CPA firm Weiser Mazars. His first agency position was as the controller of MRM, the digital agency of McCann Erickson part of the parent company, IPG, one of the largest advertising groups in the world. He then joined the PR firm, HL Group, as their CFO, which was part of the MDC Network, another agency parent company that has since been merged with Stagwell Group. Welcome to the show, James. It's a pleasure to have you as my guest.
1: Thank you. It's good to be on.
0: You have been in the agency world for over 18 years, including the advertising audit work you did as a CPA. What do you love about advertising?
1: Wow. Uh, That's that's a a good question. I think I love creativity. That's one of the things that attracted me to going into working for an ad agency was working with creative people. At the very uh, end of my schooling, I had no idea what I wanted to do. I went to a educational psychologist, took a bunch of aptitude tests, and the results came back and they said either journalism or accounting. <laughs> and I thought I loved English, I loved creativity, but I thought accounting was the kind of the, the practical choice and, and would hold me in good stead. So I went down the, the accounting route, but I always wanted to hold on to that creativity and working with creative people as a way to kind of reclaim it and to and to experience it. So that's that's kind of why I wanted to go into advertising.
0: So in the agency world, you chose accounting over copywriting.
1: Yeah, I guess
0: so. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Give me an example of what lights you up about advertising. But you know, something that, you know, from, from your perch as you know, someone is managing the the financials of of the business. What lights you up?
1: I think it's a, a number of things. I mean, starting at MRM, it was was creating. Like amazing websites coming, like these amazing concepts coming out of nothing. We did an advertising campaign for, uh, I think it was MasterCard, where you logged onto a website, they would give you a number to call, you'd call this number, and you could end up talking to Tiger Woods, I think it was Venus Williams, and it was all like pre-recorded messages, but it was integrated with the website, so you could see them on the other side of the phone, and you were actually talking to them. And I thought that was genius. I thought whoever came up with that was just a fantastic idea. And it's this—it's this idea of creating something out of nothing. And that happened. When it, that happened. How many years ago? Oh, this is going right back to when I came, like probably two thousand six, two thousand seven.
0: Cutting edge, wasn't it?
1: It was cutting edge. Yeah. It was, yeah I mean, it was, now it was oh, I
0: can see you, and you can see me. I mean, it's nothing. But back in that that period of time, that, yeah. that must have been amazing.
1: It was. And it was. I mean, it, it's 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 doing things that connect with an audience that bring them closer to the. i guess the product that you're advertising it's kind of making that connection which is great i mean there's i guess lots of advertising campaigns that never connect and they fall away but it's when you make that connection you create something special you're you're basically endearing them to a certain brand and when it works it's really good
0: yeah i mean i guess now if it was that kind of a a campaign you'd you'd be wanting to talk to obi-wan (laughs) (laughs) yeah, <laughs> <laughs> who happens to be right behind you in case of, yeah. you know I say that for a reason he's in his office and Obi-Wan with his laser is standing standing straight up in charge <laughs> did you always know that you wanted to come to the United States no
1: I was I guess going back to the very beginning I was actually born in Wales my parents immigrated to South Africa when I was three And and growing up in South Africa, I grew up during apartheid. It was a very isolated culture. We didn't have exposure. No one wanted you to come over and visit them or see them. No one came to to South Africa, no bands, no actors or anything like that. So when I, my last year of high school, kind of apartheid ended. And actually my last year of high school, I had grown up and gone to a segregated high school. They actually integrated it in my last year, which was kind of incredible. And after I graduated college, uh, I was 21 and my parents, for a birthday present, uh, paid for me to go over to the UK. So I went to the UK for two years and I, I kind of worked in the hotel, got free board and lodging and used all the money I got to travel. <laughs> I traveled around Europe. I traveled to the States and I got exposure to things i would never been exposed to before. I mean, just uh, for instance, hearing a black Englishman talk with an English accent was kind of mind-blowing. Because <laughs> in South Africa, you hear them talk with a South African accent, and you don't like expect that. And, and the people would like say, are oh, you from South Africa? Do you ride like elephants to work, or you living in the jungles?" It was just a, it was just such a culture clash, and it's just such an amazing uh, experience. But it, it was, a, it was a great, it was a great time. I really enjoyed it. And uh, when I went back to South Africa, I had in the back of my head that I'd like to, if not live overseas, at least work more time overseas. So. Mm-hmm. Initially, uh, when I went back to South Africa, I started working for an, uh, an auditing firm that was, had international connections. And uh, in my first year there, they sent someone over to America. And when I found out about that, I was like, that's what I want to do when I finish. It was like a three-year apprenticeship. When I finished my apprenticeship, that's what I wanted to do. So they did that. Actually, it was in 2001 that I, that I went over to the States. The deal was I go work in America for four months. And then when I came back to South Africa, I'd work for the firm for four months. So the firm I ended up working for was, was then called Wiser, later became Wiser Mazars, and it's now just Mazars. Right. They brought in a bunch of South Africans, because I guess they were cheap labor, but it, but good labor. Right. I trusted them to get the job done. And um, I worked for four months. It was crazy, crazy hours. It was tax season. And then on the fifth month, I traveled. So me and a friend went right across America. We took an Amtrak train, bought a one-month pass, and we went coast to coast. Stopped up like every day.
0: What was the most challenging parts of becoming an immigrant in the USA?
1: Um, Well, I guess initially when I went there in 2001, it was just not knowing anyone. And it was only for a short period of time. So it wasn't the end of the world, but it was just a different culture.
0: Mm -hmm. What what made it different? I mean, what what were the stark differences between the cultures? I
1: think, I mean, to be honest, I, I can give you an example. I think for me, when I came over to the States, I was almost nervous to tell people i remember we were in a line to go to a club and there was this big african american bouncer coming down to check the ids and i was concerned being a south african having a south african id that when he saw my id he's going to say "Oh, this guy's a racist what's this oh, guy doing no. here oh, and he no. came down he saw my id and he said come to the front of the line you're, you're african fantastic he took me to the front of the line and it was just an amazing experience you know, and, I'm yeah, smiling
0: yeah. at this. This is this is a great story. I, I love yeah. your perceptions. You know, whatever we perceive doesn't necessarily turn out the way it actually is.
1: No, it's, it doesn't. And it was also, New York was a, a very work-orientated culture. Growing up, I grew up in Durban. Durban was like an eight to four. When you told people just now, it could be and 30 minutes to five hours. There it, it was no... There was a certain amount of work pressure, but nothing like in New York. So when I came to New York, it was like, you get this done. There's no excuses. You work whatever the hours are required to get it done. There's no such thing as eight to four or nine to five. In fact, I remember in in taxis, they would send out an email saying, we require you to work a minimum of like 60 hours a week. And that was like the minimum and no one worked that. So it was just this, this culture of everything has to be done immediately it was a 24-hour culture, which is different to kind of South Africa where things close at like 6 o'clock. The clubs close at like maybe 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock. So it was just having that that like 24-hour culture. You've got massive skyscrapers. You've got um, also the interesting thing was I was effectively a minority in South Africa because white South Africans make up maybe 15% of the population. Mm. Coming to New York, I'm suddenly in the majority. So that was kind of strange.
0: I never realized that.
1: Yeah, and then see and seeing all of these different cultures, uh, much more ethnically diverse. And, and, and where I grew up, there's a lot of Indians. We have the biggest Indian population outside of India. Mm-hmm. Obviously, a lot of Black South Africans, and then ex, uh, ex English Pats and Dutch. But outside of that, there's not much diversity in terms of cultures. You come to New York; it's a melting pot for uh, numerous cultures. So, so that was that was kind of interesting.
0: Diversity is a major topic. In the agency world, as an immigrant, how do you see yourself fitting into diversity? Uh, Did you see this as a benefit or a detriment? I think when I came
1: to, I guess when I came back to the States, which was in in 2004, the diversity kind of helped me there because at at that time, there was a a joint venture between Wiser, which was an American auditing firm, and Mazars, which was a French auditing firm, and they really didn't like each other. The, the Americans thought the French were kind of lazy, didn't follow the rules. The French thought the Americans were kind of pedantic and, and bombastic, didn't like working with them. Mm-hmm. And I was South African, so I, I had no allegiance to either side. And so they both loved working with me. So the the the, the great thing was I was about half of the audit engagements I was on was bizarre, and so the other half were wiser. And I was kind of a, I don't know if a, a bridge is the right word, but I was kind of a a segue between the two two audit firms. So it worked out pretty well. I got to the exposure, the European exposure, and then the American exposure. I got to work on really big French clients and big American clients. So the diversity there really worked to my benefit. And I think I've also, I think one of the things for me, and uh, when I left South Africa, when I went to the UK, a lot of ex-South Africans that go to the UK just kind of hang out with other South Africans. I never wanted to be like that. I wanted to identity, like learn the culture that I was in, experience the culture that I was in and kind of hang out with people outside of my culture. So when I came to America, I really wanted to hang out with people that I had never like had exposure to before and hear their backgrounds and their lifestyles. And even today, I would say the majority of my friends maybe are, are very, it's very multi-ethnic and multicultural. I've got Chinese friends, I've got friends from Ghana that have immigrated to the States, from Nigeria, kind of from all over and not just kind of American born and bred.
0: So you truly wanted to assimilate in the melting pot?
1: I think each culture has got so much to offer. And I think the best way to proceed is kind of to take the best of each culture and kind of integrate it into your life.
0: I am 100% with you. Uh, yeah, you, you're you're definitely a creative mind from that perspective. And that's partially how I could see why you would like the agency world, because there's a lot of that going on as well it's targeted but it's it's also expansive yeah i find as a recruiter in general people who immigrate to the usa have an energized work ethic what is your experience with that
1: statement i think that's true i think i think when you grew up in the country you kind of get an expectation that the country needs to give you stuff whether it be south africa growing up in south Africa i had an expectation of I, I've grown up here. It's it's you, The country owes me something back. But I think immigrants coming into a country don't have that expectation and they realize they have to work really hard to get whatever they get. They come in with no expectations. I came to the States in 2001 with nothing. Uh, outside of uh, a couple bags of clothes, I knew no one in, in America. I didn't have any friends here. So I built everything up kind of from scratch. And uh, I, I realized... One of the things that I found great about New York compared to South Africa was leaving South Africa, there was a lot of unemployment. There was a lot of crime. I mean, I've still had my family there. I go back there. I was back there in December. People have electric fences around their properties. They have uh, there's probably a 40% plus unemployment rate in the country right now. Wow. And and you and, and it's not safe to walk around in the city, whether even during the day, but certainly not at night. So I came to New York, and this was a major city. You watch like watching movies, you think it's like a war zone, or whatever. there's lots of crime. but it was actually incredibly safe. and I really appreciated being able to come to a place that if I was willing to work hard, I got rewarded for the effort that I put in. so i didn't I didn't think America owed me anything. I didn't have any expectations. I came, I worked. I was working really hard at at Mazar's. I as hundred plus hour weeks for the first two and a half years until I got my green card. Mm-hmm. And then I was like burnt out and moved on. But I, I, I really had this, uh, this goal that if I worked hard, I could achieve something. And um, I think for the most part, that, that played out.
0: So we can call you an American uh, success story or an African-American <laughs> success story.
1: <laughs> I guess so, yes.
0: <laughs> All right. Looking at your career, you've worked with both large and small firms within a parent company, as well as now part of an independent firm. What are the challenging parts of being under the umbrella of a parent company?
1: Well, I, I think especially under McCann & Erickson, um, you have a shareholders to deliver against. There's, there's shareholder expectations. So you've got to have the, the results. And if you don't have the results, you've got to put a plan in action immediately that gets you those results. And that could be significant layoffs. It could be restructuring, whatever that is. So there's always at the back of your mind, if you're not delivering, when's, that, when's the hammer going to fall uh, or the axe going to fall? And that was, I guess, with McCann, it was, it was that kind of, you have monthly meetings where you're going into detailed descriptions about why there's a variance against budget, what's caused that variance, looking at the projections of revenue, are we getting the revenue pipeline? If you lose the significant client, what are the steps that you're doing to kind of correct the salaries and operating costs against that loss of revenue. So that that, that was the stuff I really didn't like. Uh, hmm. I, the, the advantages to being working with a holding company is you get Which exposure. Which was my to,
0: next question. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> the, the the advantages where you get exposure to very talented people. It's an international network. So you, you've got offices all over the world. You've got huge clients. And the, typically the people that are in leadership roles there have have fantastic experience. And if they're willing to mentor you and, and to teach you, there's a lot to learn by working in that working with those people.
0: Mm-hmm. So what are the challenging parts of working for an independent? There's a couple, I guess.
1: The one is, is obviously you're responsible for your own destiny. If you don't have money coming into your bank accounts, you're not going to be able to pay anyone. Whereas with a holding company, you have a holding company that is Taking care of all of that, they'll provide you with the resources to pay your employees. So it, it it's incredibly um, you have you have to be super strict with collections of money, with with uh, planning of how you're going to spend that money, making sure that you have have enough money to come in to kind of cover the rent, cover the salaries and things like that. So that that's a that's a challenge. It can be a challenge. Yeah, I think also in certain circumstances. You, you don't, the benefit of, of like not having the shareholders that you report to, it can make you sometimes slow to react to certain things. So for instance, the, the partners might not see eye to eye on certain matters and there's, they don't necessarily push it because they, they think they can take their time to make a decision. Whereas in a public company, you don't necessarily have that time to make that decision. That also decision. could
0: be the benefit as well. But with, with the partners, they're the stockholders. Correct. <laughs> okay. They're
1: are stockholders and they which, and they're the decision makers. Yeah.
0: Yeah, which makes it, in some respects, I guess, more entrepreneurial. You have more freedom and flexibility to make choices based on how they want to move.
1: That's true. Yeah, for sure. I mean, the, there is there's. I mean, for instance, during COVID, uh, CBX, as with many other companies, was impacted by COVID. There was a downturn in some of our revenue. And the partners made an active decision not to let anyone go. They like they they said we'll take a hit to our margins. We we we're willing to ride this out, we value out our staff, and we're not gonna have any uh, staff reductions in 20 when it seems so long ago now, 2021, right? Or 2020 was the when that happened.
0: <laughs> oh man. Yeah. We get a little lost, don't we? <laughs>
1: they 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 were they were willing to to take that, whereas in a public company, they that would never I don't happen. think it would happen. Never happened. No, it no.
0: Wouldn't. It would not. I mean, with rare exception, if there's a company that was recently bought by them and had power of their decisions up until a certain period of time, maybe they'd have a little more flexibility. But eventually, when the ownership goes to the parent company, yeah, the decisions come from the top. And it's pretty formulated, isn't it?
1: Yeah, it is. I mean, that that, that was kind of the interesting thing working at HL group being part of MDC, was it was kind of a hybrid between an independent shop and a public company because MDC was very hands-off, at least when I was there. They, yes. they trusted they trusted the, the, the two founding partners who were integrally involved. They trusted them to, to basically get the results and they, they didn't interfere. And for the most part, we were getting the results so there was no need for them to interfere. But if you asked, especially when I joined, if you asked any of the staff, did they know they were part of a holding company, they would have said no. I mean, they would have thought that that the two founding partners were the owners of the of the firm. That there was no outside third party that held an ownership percentage in it, which was kind of interesting. Yeah, yeah it would never yeah. happen at McCann. Or no,
0: it, none of the big agencies would do that. Some of the smaller agencies, agency groups. I remember going way back. Omnicom used to be that way. They gave the person, they gave the people, the power of their, you know, their corporate culture. Mm-hmm. But that changed. <laughs> As time went by, that changed. And that's an interesting insight, Uh, very interesting insight. Over your time in the agency world, you've worked with every department. You know their stress points and how to deal with them, especially now during the pandemic. For the benefit of future CFOs and senior management in the chaotic world of advertising, what are the unique stress points and success points for the following departments? <laughs> okay? We'll, okay. Start, we'll start with one of my favorites, creatives.
1: <laughs> uh, I guess the stress point at least from a financial perspective is they have very little interest in doing timesheets. They have that's, it's a continuous challenge. and in fact, last week I had one-on-one meetings with some of the more problematic users in my company. Who, who don't enter time uh, and it's, it's, the, the, they, they want to do great work. They don't want to dealt with dealing with any of the admin side of the business that, that doesn't concern them. So getting time in, they don't want to have to deal with that. Sometimes holding them to a budget number of hours, they don't really want to deal with that either. They, they want to have enough time to deliver the, the product that they're happy with. Mm-hmm. They don't really take into consideration while well, the client is paying for X, you're delivering Y, the two don't correlate. and when you go over what the client is paying for, you basically start costing the company money. right <laughs> So it's, it's, it's been interesting having those conversations with with creatives. And I think the way that I that I've been able to do it is to explain to them that it, I think especially in, in smaller shops, we don't want people working 60, 80 hours a week. We want them to work a 40 hour week. We'd like all of those 40 hours to be billable, but we want them <laughs> to work a 40 hour week. And when they start working over those 40 hours and their department head comes to me and says, I need freelancers, and I'm looking at the revenue that they're generating, I'm saying, well, your revenue doesn't justify bringing on freelancers because you because they're basically overburning on all their, their jobs and putting in more hours than we allotted for them. Then they, there's going to be a hurt because we can't afford to bring on freelancers. It means that they have to then put in more time if they're going to continue to overburn on their projects. So when I kind of explain it to them like that and say... Yeah. You have a budgeted number of hours. You keep to that budgeted number of hours. You're never going to have to work extra. Or there might be circumstances where the client's not happy, or there's a a bunch of deliverables due on a certain date that you have to put more hours in. But typically, you're going to work. You're going to have a good work-life balance because you're going to be billing according to what we've budgeted, and we're not going to be. And when we get busy, it means we can bring on additional resources to help you.
0: So you're dealing from common sense. I mean yes. it, it, it yeah, which not is not, sense always, for you and I, yeah, not always well for same. financial people it's yeah, it's it's you know, you you, get, you gotta pay the bills and yes. you know we have to pay the, you know, the payroll and everything else. It's not always appreciated, but there's gotta be a way, a tone, a methodology that you know, who you're being with them that makes makes them look at you and say, Oh, he's kind of bad news, but he's a good guy.
1: I think there has to be, I think empathy is a big is a big uh, part of it. Good value. Uh, when you can empathize with what they're going through, yes, even if you don't necessarily understand it, but you can empathize with it, it goes a long way. Awesome. Yeah. So what about client services? Client services is usually an easier group to deal with because they kind of have a financial sense. They understand they, they're monitoring the budgets. They understand about overburn. They understand uh, about utilization. The, the difficulty with with client services is, I think it's really hard to find a really good client service person. Uh, when I what I look for in a good client service person is someone that's reaching out to clients, taking clients to lunch, taking them out. I remember when I was in public accounting, I would I would we do these big audits, and I would be bringing in coffee, Starbucks coffee in the mornings. We would I would invite them to join us for lunch and things like that. I just so they felt a part of the team. It, it, we CBX is a great agency, but there's a bunch of great agencies out of there outside, and what the what the client is more interested in is a great relationship. They want good work, but they also want a good relationship with that client.
0: Finding what you have in common with them, understanding them better, knowing the values that connect to you to them—that's this is chemistry factor talk. Now, when you understand that you know they're dedicated, that mm-hmm. dedication, to excellence—you exhibit that. You you show them that you're dedicated as well, and you talk about it. In the conversation, say at lunch, say over a cup of coffee, you get to appreciate each other and what you have in common with each other. Now, I'm using one example, but there are so many values that you know we're not going to stop and talk about them.
1: <laughs> I would just say that I think we had a client service, I think he was a client service director, who for me was the epitome of what a good client service person should be doing because he really thought, he really wanted to help his clients. And by helping his clients, he grew CBX's revenue. So the client knew that he was they were that he was actively interested in their business, that he wanted their business to succeed, and because they knew that he was, he had a vested interest in their business. They wanted to work with him. They wanted to give him the work because he they knew that he cared about their business as much as they cared for their
0: business. That's that's a good point. How would you compare client services to strategic
1: strategy? Is um, I mean, I think strategy is also suffers a bit from creative, and that they're already that concerned about the hours that they're putting against jobs. They want to they want to come up with great strategic concepts for their clients and and put it into practice. Mm-hmm. So we we you have sometimes issues with with strategy and with kind of overburning on on the areas that they're working for. But I I, I do think that they have a much more practical mindset, so it's easier to explain these things to them. They are not they understand kind of the budget they understand when you when you go through what they have in terms of a lot of hours they, they get it so it's not a creative where they where they want to put as many hours as possible to generate the best work strategy is is more practical I would say to deal with than with 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 creatives
0: yeah what about dealing with sea level and partners <laughs> <laughs> oh big smile now be careful what you say. <laughs>
1: I think I have worked for like CEOs that are incredibly uh, demanding. They want answers right away. But I, I think when you work out what they want and you're giving them what they want, they're fantastic. They love you. Yes. It's when, you, when you're when you dealing with people and you're not understanding what they're needing and you're not fulfilling their, their, what they're looking for that the problems arise. So I think with most... Uh, C-level and and, and partner-level people, over time, you get to know what they want and how, how to interact with them, how to handle them. And as long as you're kind of doing what they what they expect from you and what they're looking for from you, they're great.
0: Sounds like organization and being a step ahead of the game makes a big difference. And if, if even more than one step, two steps, or three steps, the value of trust becomes easy to, to, to accept.
1: Yeah, I, I think so. I, I think to me, I mean, like this is not really it's kind of semi-related. It's the same reason that I love dealing with clients and the contract negotiations is it's understanding understanding what they are, what they what they want, and then being able to compromise on certain things. Like with a client, is they want to pay as little as possible, but they want great work. For us, we want you to pay as much as possible and we'll deliver great work, but it's knowing how far they're willing to go. And how far are we are willing to go? And then coming to a compromise in the middle where mm-hmm. we're both getting what we want.
0: You, you jumped to clients, which is good because that was one of the... And then I was going to say procurement.
1: <laughs> oh, yes. That's also great. Another favorite topic. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: what's the best way to deal with procurement?
1: Procurement is a difficult one. It depends on how much the client likes you, I think, at the end of the day. Uh, if the client really values your values services they're going to push procurement around. If they don't value your services, then they're going to do whatever procurement tells them to.
0: Then you better start another RFP, RFP real fast,
1: right? <laughs> but again, with procurement, it's also, it's the same, as understanding what what they're trying to deliver back to their, I mean, for these procurement, a lot of them are public companies. It's, it's ultimately what they're delivering back to their CFO and to their CEO and to the shareholders. Uh, so you always have to give them something to deliver, but at the same time, they can't get everything they want. It's, it's, it's coming to an understanding of this, we'll give you this, but you have to understand that we're a, a, a smaller agency. We can't give you an 180-day terms because we, we have to we fund our own payroll and we, we need to get paid for the work. Yeah. So we'll make these compromises here and you make these compromises there and we'll 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 meet. Right. I think with procurement, it's it's a case of you come away and now there's necessarily happy but but it's it's okay you can handle it I remember <laughs> I remember with um when I was at back in 2001 at at Mazars there was a, a partner at Mazars that would would go in and he'd meet with the the client that he was auditing and he'd make a huge deal of one small issue he'd make it the biggest deal ever and he would almost like wear the client down with a small deal then he said okay we'll compromise and that small deal and then everything else, the client just caved in because they didn't want to make it a huge hassle, that's a which was an
0: interesting, interesting way to negotiate. Very <laughs> interesting. That's a very interesting way to go about things. I remember when I was in college, I was selling Encyclopedia Britannicas when books were still around. Okay. You would show them the leather set. Then you'd show them the next left set. Then you'd show them the standard set, which was a lot less expensive and much easier to say yes to. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's interesting. It sounds to me like one of your favorite parts of of the agency world is to getting involved in new business and, and the strategies that go around that.
1: What, what
0: would you say to that?
1: I mean, I, I believe that new business is is a lifeblood of any agency. You have to be bringing that business in big to, to take into account clients that are leaving or reducing their spend. So yeah, I think new business is, is, is incredibly important. And, uh, it's been interesting over the years how we've dealt with it. I mean, being part of a public company, you have a huge machine that's pumping out proposals and, and you have a brand name out there that can drive business. It's it's, it's a lot easier in so in many respects to get that piece of business because you're recognized in the industry. As you go to a smaller agency, it really becomes, I think, important that uh, your work is a testament to your abilities and you can show that that what you've done for other clients to kind of drive that piece of business. I know that when I was at HL Group, the two founding partners were very well known in the industry. So we had a new business team, but it was really the partner's name in the industry that drove the the business that we got. They wanted to be working with those those partners.
0: The name would get you an RFP. It doesn't necessarily get you the win. What's the best way for you what would you recommend to financial people that are sitting at the other side of the table? How, how are you best to be a part, you know, that they see you're there for their best interests?
1: I think from a financial perspective, it's coming up with innovative ways. For instance, I think just from a an overall point of view, I, I, when in these new business pitches, it's a lot to do with chemistry. The, the, the people that you're meeting with want to know that you care about their business. They want to know that they can trust you to, to do something that's going to help their business. And it's, it's going in there with a team that understands what their needs and needs are and puts, a, puts together a pitch that, that answers what they're looking for. And then it comes down to pricing and things like that. But I think if you can show that you're really addressing what they're looking for, we're not that far out of whack with any of the other agencies. We, all the agencies, the fees are pretty standardized.
0: You seem to be having a lot of fun in your career. What wisdom would you give our listeners on how to best enjoy agency life?
1: That's a tough one. Uh, I think for me, it's work at an agency that you enjoy the work that they're doing. You enjoy the, the people that are working there. Don't move to an agency or don't work at an agency just for a paycheck, just for a role because there's no enjoyment from that. You want to work with people that you enjoy spending time with. I mean, today is kind of weird because of COVID, everybody's working remotely. But in pre-COVID times, you spend 40 plus hours a week with these people. And if you're going into work every day and you're dealing with people that you dislike, it's a terrible way to work.
0: Well, relationship chemistry is what we're all about. I mean, the chemistry factor yeah. is all about finding what you have in common. And sometimes We get stuck in what disconnects us. Like it's a repetitive circle that, you know, Einstein said, you know, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over, expecting a different result. But when you start learning new values that inspire you and the people you're working with, suddenly it becomes even more of an adventure. Does Does that resonate at all for you?
1: Yeah, I think that's true. I think also at, at CBX we want people that want to be there, that that enjoy what they do, that that want to make CBX something more than it is currently.
0: Ah, uh, so Confucius, so, love what you do, and you'll never work a day in your life.
1: I mean, the partners—if you ask the partners—they want someone that's working there to take over their job. That's really what they want. They want yeah. They want that level of person who wants who's going to do what the partners did and start their own agency. That that they want these people that are care about their clients care about the work and and want to put the best product forward.
0: I think you're going to find that more often in an independent than you will in a in a parent company organization. Because yeah, yeah uh, totally. Uh the top sometimes won't tell anybody that they're hiring somebody to replace yeah. the seat. you know, it's just like a surprise. Whereas yeah. with what what goes on an in independent there, there's more transparency.
1: Yeah that's for sure. I mean we I can look even at CBX when we our lease ended in April last year and we held meetings with the staff to talk tell them about kind of what well, the spaces that we were looking at. We took their feedback on board and in fact we were going to sign a new lease and we decided not to hold off because people didn't feel comfortable coming back into the office. Whereas I think in a, in a I read all of these large companies I think AT&T has said that You're going to have to come back in the office. If you're not vaccinated, we're going to fire you. That's not the CBX mentality. That's not how they treat their staff. So a lot of companies look at the bottom line as the most important thing for the company. I really believe that CBX looks at its staff as the lifeblood of its agency and having good staff that that care about their clients and and want to work for CBX will drive great work.
0: So in other words, what you're saying is if having relationships with clients is all about looking out for their best interests. The best way to do that is to look out for your own employees' best interests as well.
1: Yeah, I think there's, it there has to be, it has to be, a, that, that's true. But at the end of the day, it also has to be a happy medium. We're not a not-for-profit, right?
0: No, 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 you, no, no. When I say best interest, do. it doesn't necessarily mean you get everything you want. Yeah, okay. Okay, but it does mean that you're encouraged to enjoy what you're doing. Yes, and and given the challenges that 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 inspire you,
1: yes, and I think I I I, that's I mean that's the great thing about working for a smaller shop is that I think even the lowest level employee has access to the partners. They the partners care about their staff, and uh, in a public company, you're just typically a cog in a much bigger machine.
0: So you landed well. (laughs) I did, yeah. (laughs) Congratulations! Look. It's been a pleasure, and I could continue. We could go on and on, but you know, there is a a time factor. So, I want to thank you for joining me today. And boy, I learned some stuff from you. I really appreciate it. Good, good talk. Uh, You have a wonderful day, and I will speak to you later. Sounds good. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe. Rate, review, and recommend the Chemistry Factor to your friends. If you would like to connect with me on social media, reach out to Barney Feinberg on LinkedIn. To connect with me directly, email Barney at Until next time, empower your business success every day.